This is the Music Halls of Fame podcast. This week we honor the year in music for 2014 along with a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 2014. We also look at the case for putting Soundgarden into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and our spotlight is the Library of Congress National Recording Registry in Washington, D.C. Before we get going with the podcast, like everyone tells you, please like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell so you'll know when these podcast episodes drop, which is usually every Thursday. Now, on to this week's episode. The year was 2014. In music, U2 gave everyone their new album, Songs of Innocence, for free on iTunes. Unfortunately, a lot of people didn't like the fact that it was automatically uploaded to their iTunes account without their permission. Taylor Swift went up against Spotify concerning artists getting paid more on the platform. 50 Cent threw a ceremonial pitch at a baseball game that was just a bit outside to his extreme embarrassment. Apple also bought Dr. Dre's Beats by Dre Company. Bands that formed in 2014 include Cheat Codes, Sophie Tucker, Minx, Lip Service, Red Velvet, Stereo Kicks, Melody Day, and Missio. Bands that either broke up or took an extended break included the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, The Wanted, The Allman Brothers Band, The Beastie Boys, Jethro Tull, LFO, Danity Kane, Pink Floyd, Rob Bass and DJ, Easy Rock, and Slaughterhouse. Bands that got back together included Metro Station, L7, Luna, Breaking Benjamin, Basement, Deep Dish, and Outkast. Taylor Swift released her first official pop album, 1989, which was the biggest selling album of 2014 and eventually won the Grammy Award in 2015 for Best Album. It wasn't eligible for 2014's Grammys because it was released in late October, which was a month past the 2014 Grammy Award nominations deadline. Other big albums of the year were by Ed Sheeran, Coldplay, Sam Smith, One Direction, Pentatonix, Beyonce, Barbara Streisand, ACDC, Pink Floyd, Lord, Sia, Beck, Pharrell Williams, and the Frozen and Guardians of the Galaxy soundtracks. Singles-wise, 2014 was also the year of Eminem's Monster with Rihanna, also Iggy Azalea's Fancy, Pitbull and Kesha's Timber, Katy Perry's Dark Horse, Pharrell's Happy, John Legend's All of Me, Jason Derulo's Talk Dirty, Edina Menzel's Let It Go, A Great Big World, and Christina Aguilera's Say Something, Sam Smith's Latch and also Stay With Me, Sia's Chandelier, Nicki Minaj's Anaconda, Taylor Swift's Shake It Off, DJ Snake and Lil Jon's Turn Down For What, and Megan Trainor's All About That Bass, No Treble. Mark Ronson and Bruno Mars released Uptown Funk late in 2014, but that became a huge hit in 2015. In country music, it was the year of coming out and also health concerns. 
Artists Ty Herndon and Billy Gilman both came out as gay on November 20th, while songwriter Dick Feller came out as a transgender woman. Meanwhile, Trace Atkins entered rehab for alcoholism, while Glenn Campbell entered a care facility to take care of him while in the final years of his battle with Alzheimer's disease. George Strait retired from performing after setting the record for the largest indoor concert in American history with over 105,000 of his closest friends in Texas. The best-selling country song of the year was Burning It Down by Jason Aldean. Other best-selling country songs were by Luke Bryant, Carrie Underwood, Florida Georgia Line, Tim McGraw, Brantley Gilbert, Miranda Lambert, and Cole Swindell. The top-selling country album was Luke Bryan's Crash My Party. The other top albums for the year were released by Florida Georgia Line, Eric Church, Jason Aldean, Brantley Gilbert, Miranda Lambert, Florida Georgia Line, Blake Shelton, Garth Brooks, and Cole Swindell. In dance music, the charts had less to do with the pop and R&B crossover artists like years past as the EDM revolution was in full swing by then. While Iggy Azalea, Nicki Minaj, and Sam Smith had big-selling dance songs, Clean Bandit's Rather Be was the biggest dance track of the year. Other big singles were Sigma's Changing, Dub's Tsunami, Calvin Harris's Summer, Tiesto's Wasted, OMI's Cheerleader, David Guetta's Hey Mama, Avicii's The Nights, Fuse ODG's Dangerous Love, and Klingan's Jubal. In hip-hop, Iggy Azalea ruled the year as her song with Charlie XCX, Fancy, was the biggest song of the year. Other hits were by DJ Snake and Little John, Nicki Minaj, Bobby Shmurda, Will I Am, Pitbull, Crow, Flo Rida, and Jeremy and YG. As far as albums went, the biggest ones were released by J. Cole, Nicki Minaj, Rick Ross, Koliga, Schoolboy Q, Young Jeezy, Pharrell, Wiz Khalifa, Lecrae, and a Shady Records compilation. In Latin music, Romeo was the biggest artist of the year. Other big-selling Latin artists were Enrique Iglesias, Mark Anthony, Jenny Rivera, Santana, Gerardo Ortiz, Prince Royce, and Marco Antonio Solis. Lead singer Dave Brocky of Guar passed away from an opioid drug overdose as the world had yet to officially grasp the dangers of the drug. That would come a few years later when Prince and Tom Petty became two of the most famous casualties of opioid addiction. Other musical artists who passed away in 2014 included radio DJ Casey Kasem, also DJ Frankie Knuckles, pianist Joe Sample, Bobby Womack, jazz pianist Horace Silver, Tommy Ramone of the Ramones, jazz clarinetist Buddy DeFranco, Johnny Winter, Jack Bruce of Cream, Joe Cocker, Phil Everly of the Everly Brothers, and folk legend Pete Seeger. At the Grammy Awards, Beck won Album of the Year for Morning Phase, Sam Smith won Record of the Year for Stay With Me, Pharrell won Song of the Year for Happy, and Sam Smith won Best New Artist. At the American Music Awards, One Direction won Artist of the Year. At the Billboard Music Awards, Taylor Swift won Top Artist. And at the MTV Video Music Awards, the Video of the Year went to Miley Cyrus for Wrecking Ball. 
at the Eurovision Singing Contest that was held in Copenhagen, Denmark. Austria won for the song Rise Like a Phoenix. At the Tony Awards, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder won Best Musical, and Hedwig and the Angry Inch won Best Revival of a Musical. The Pulitzer Prize for Music went to John Luther Adams for Becoming Ocean, John Adams for The Gospel According to the Other Mary, and Christopher Cerrone for Invisible Cities. Musically, at the Academy Awards, Alexander Desplat won Best Original Score for The Grand Budapest Hotel, while Common and John Legend won Best Song for Glory from the movie Selma. In 2014, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony was held on April 10th in Brooklyn, New York at the Barclay Center. During the ceremony, the E Street Band were inducted into the hall and given the award for musical excellence. In the non-performers category, record producer Andrew Lug Oldman and Beatles manager Brian Epstein were both inducted into the non-performers category, although Oldham refused to attend the ceremony because he thought it was a slap in the face to him that he was also inducted with someone else for the category, let alone with Brian Epstein. And in the performers category, the hall inducted Peter Gabriel, Hall & Oates, Kiss, Linda Ronstant, Cat Stevens, and this next group. Kurt Cobain was born on February 20, 1967, in Aberdeen, Washington. Kurt's parents divorced when he was nine, which affected him greatly. He started acting out in school, bullying other kids, until he himself started to be bullied once he started hanging out with the misfits during high school. Kurt was kicked out of his mother's house when he was 18. He drifted into a couple of relationships, including one with Tracy Miranda, who the song About a Girl is actually about, and also Toby Vale of Bikini Kill, and whose relationship the vast majority of the album Nevermind is about. In fact, once Vale's bandmate Kathleen Hanna spray-painted the words Kurt smells like teen spirit on Kurt's wall. Teen spirit was the deodorant that Vale used. And now you know where the song title came from. Kurt met Chris Novoselic while practicing in a rehearsal space. They formed the band Nirvana, the name of which was taken from a Buddhist concept as Kurt was into religion at the time and wanted what he called, quote, a beautiful name, end quote. They also called themselves Skid Row for a little while, except that there was already a popular hair band of the same name, so that wasn't going to work out long term. And even though Nirvana is known as a classic three-piece lineup, they actually had Jason Everman playing rhythm guitar in 1989. They went through more than a few drummers as well. Aaron Burkhardt played drums in 1987. In 1988, they went through Dale Crover until they lost touch with him when they moved to Tacoma and Olympia, Washington. Remember, this was pre-internet and cell phones were still for really, really rich people. Back then, when you lost touch with someone, you really lost touch with someone. They eventually did get back in touch with Dale, but in the meantime, they found Dave Foster and then Chad Channing. Channing played drums on their EP Bleach. Channing didn't actually last that long. 
Then, after borrowing Dan Peters from the group Mud Honey, they got Dave Grohl. That move cemented Nirvana's classic lineup. Nirvana had three session musicians playing on their albums. Mark Pickerell played drums in 1989. Kirk Canning and Kara Shaley both played cello, Kirk in 1991 and Kara in 1993. They toured with four other musicians during the 1993-1994 tour. John Duncan played rhythm guitar, Lori Goldston and Melora Krieger played cello, and Pat Smear played rhythm guitar. After the demise of Nirvana, Pat and Dave Grohl went on to form another group that was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame recently, the Foo Fighters. In 1988, Nirvana put out some music on Seattle's independent record label Sub Pop. Their first single was their version of Shocking Blue's Love Buzz. They recorded their EP Bleach for $606.17 and released it on Sub Pop, who they had signed a contract with by then. They also recorded an EP called Blue, but a couple of things changed their history. The first was that Sub Pop didn't really do a whole lot of promotions on Bleach, even though it was selling at a decent clip. That did not sit well with the band, whose demos started making the rounds at the major record labels. Eventually, they did end up signing with DGC Records. The other thing was that Kurt and Chris didn't like Chad's style of playing, and Chad wanted to write more music, and you know how it works out. One thing led to another. Channing was out at that point. That's why he did not last long. They ended up getting Mudhoney's drummer Dan Peters to fill in while they did seven opening gigs with the group Sonic Youth, and then looked for a new drummer, and that's when they found Dave Grohl. In 1991, Nirvana got to work on their next album, which they recorded in California. They decided that they needed to make a music video for their first song off of the album, Smells Like Teen Spirit. The band wanted a director who didn't have that slick corporate smell to him, so they settled on Samuel Bayer. Then they got a soundstage in Culver City, California, put out some advertisements for extras, and even invited their fans to show up for the video shoot during a concert a couple of days earlier. On Saturday, August 17, 1991, the band got to work shooting the video. The video's storyline was a concert at a high school that turned into total anarchy. They threw in shots of a janitor who was played by a trivia answer, Tony De La Rosa, along with cheerleaders dressed in black to drive the point home. The big problem with the shoot was how long the extras had to actually sit there on the bleachers without moving. For those of you unfamiliar with making videos, it sometimes takes forever. You have to do take after take after take after take, and these extras had to sit there for a really long time. By the time they were allowed to get up and film the total anarchy scene, oh yeah, the kids were feeling it. They unleashed and turned the shoot into a mosh pit, which is exactly what Kurt Cobain wanted. What Kurt didn't want, though, was the original edit to the video. He hated it. In fact, he hated it so much that he actually ended up re-editing it. He even added that shot towards the end of himself screaming into the camera. 
Finally, the edit was done and the video was released. On September 29, 1991, MTV played Smells Like Teen Spirit for the first time. It turned out to be one of those watershed moments in music. It introduced grunge to the mainstream, and the mainstream ate it up. It jump-started Nirvana's career along with the Seattle grunge movement, allowing groups like Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, and Soundgarden to break into the mainstream finally. The video itself is considered one of the greatest music videos of all time. Once Nirvana broke through, Alice in Chains followed along with Soundgarden and Pearl Jam in pretty rapid succession, even though Soundgarden was actually the first of the four bands to put out an album. Within a few months, these four bands and their lead singers became spokespeople for their generation. Pearl Jam's Eddie Vedder ended up on the cover of Time magazine. Both Pearl Jam and Nirvana ended up on separate covers of Rolling Stone magazine. Being the spokesperson for Generation X never sat well with Kurt. First off, he actually hated fame. He wanted the band to do well, but he was quiet and was really an introvert. He didn't want to be a spokesperson for any generation, let alone his own. He also wasn't a fan of a lot of his fans, most of whom he found fake, and only in it because it was trendy to like grunge at that point in time. For the record, he was not wrong about that. I was around during those days. I remember them well. A lot of fake grunge fans back in the day. In typical punk rock fashion, Nirvana rebelled and did things their way. For instance, they were invited to play the MTV Video Music Awards, but they weren't allowed to play the song that Kurt wanted to play, which was Rape Me. When it came time to play, Kurt played the first 20 seconds of Rape Me just to mess with MTV. And then he played the song Lithium. Another time they bit the hand that fed them was when they performed on MTV Unplugged. MTV wanted them to perform all of their hits and other songs off of Nevermind. Instead, they only played all apologies off of the album. The rest of the songs were mainly cover songs, like David Bowie's The Man Who Sold the World. As usual, Nirvana knew what they were doing as their Unplugged performance is considered one of the top five greatest performances in that show's history. With all of this success, both wanted and unwanted, Kurt turned to one thing, drugs. Kurt was already using by the time Nirvana hit it big, as he was trying out different drugs to try to ease the pain from a chronic stomach condition. By the time Nirvana started touring to support Nevermind, he was also into heroin. He actually overdosed once before a performance in 1993, but his wife Courtney Love injected him with naloxone to get him conscious again. Kurt also suffered from depression and bipolar disorder, which really did not make things any easier. Still, Nirvana pressed on and made their next record. In Utero was a complete departure from what the record label wanted. Instead of making Nevermind Part 2, the band went even more hardcore punk. The album was made for $25,000 and took two weeks to record. The album was still a smash right out the gate, though, regardless of how the record label felt. 
there was just no stopping this band. For Kurt, though, it was a different story. Nirvana started the European leg of their In Utero tour in early 1994. The tour didn't last too long. On March 4th, Kurt took some drugs that he had been prescribed and chased them down with some alcohol. He was found in his hotel room and rushed to the hospital. Once he was out of the hospital, his heroin addiction came back full tilt. His friends and family held an intervention and got him to go to rehab. That didn't take less than a week later. Kurt escaped rehab and went back to his house in Seattle. Finally, the world and the pressures that came with it were too much for Kurt. On April 5th, 1994 at the age of 27 at a greenhouse at his place on Lake Washington, Kurt penned a suicide note. Sometime after, he took a shotgun to his head and pulled the trigger. His body was found on April 8th by an electrician who had come to do some work on the house. Now, there have been many, many conspiracy theories about how maybe Courtney Love had Kurt killed because of what some people called a toxic relationship or that someone else had him killed. However, by all accounts from the people who saw him towards the end, Kurt was heavily using drugs and was very depressed. What could have been? Presented for induction by Michael Stipe of 2007's Rock Hall inductees, R.E.M., and with 2015 Rock Hall inductee, Joan Jett, taking over performing duties in the band for Kurt during the induction performance itself, Nirvana. Inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Class of 2014. Before we get to the rest of the podcast, we'd like to tell you about our other podcast, the Music History Today podcast. Every day we tell you what happened on that date in music history along with music releases, birthdays, and passings. So, if you like this podcast and want more music history, then please search the Music History Today podcast in audio or video form on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast from. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame recently announced their list of nominees for induction into this year's upcoming class. And this week, we're going to look at the history and make the case for you to vote for Soundgarden to be inducted. Soundgarden was a band that pushed boundaries, defied conventions, and was one of the bands that set the standard for grunge rock. With their powerful riffs, haunting melodies, and iconic lyrics, Soundgarden will always be remembered as one of the most influential and important rock bands of all time. Soundgarden was formed in Seattle, Washington back in 1984. The band's original lineup consisted of Chris Cornell doing vocals and guitar, Kim Thale, who was doing guitar, Hiro Yamamoto, who was doing bass, and Scott Sundquist, who was playing drums. After Sunquist left the band, Matt Cameron became the permanent drummer in 1986. 
Cameron, for the record, joined Pearl Jam in 1998 as their new drummer and, for a little while at least, did double duty playing in both bands. The band's early sound was heavily influenced by punk rock and heavy metal, but they soon developed their own style, which combined punk, metal, and alternative rock. Soundgarden's early releases, such as the 1987 EP Screaming Life and the 1988 album Fop, received critical acclaim and helped to establish the band as one of the leading forces in the Seattle music scene. Over the course of their career, the band released a total of six studio albums, one live album, five compilation albums, six extended plays, and 23 singles to go along with them. Their discography includes Ultra Mega OK back in 1988, which was really their debut album, and received critical acclaim for its heavy, abrasive sound and complex song structures. Louder Than Love followed suit in 1989. This album was a departure from the abrasiveness of the debut, and it also was a little bit more polished in its production. Bad Motorfinger is considered a landmark in the development of grunge and also alternative rock. This 1991 album features Jesus Christ Pose and Outshined. Soundgarden's breakthrough actually came with the release of their fourth studio album, Super Unknown, back in 1994. The album was a big success, reaching number one on the Billboard Top 200 charts and selling over 9 million copies worldwide. Super Unknown also earned Soundgarden multiple Grammy nominations, including one for Best Rock Album. The hit singles from the album, Black Hole Sun and Spoon Man, helped to further popularize the grunge genre and establish Soundgarden as one of the biggest bands in the world at that point. Next came Down on the Upside from 1996. This album marked a complete departure from Soundgarden's earlier sound, incorporating a little psychedelia and funk into their hard rock mix. In 1997, Soundgarden announced that they were breaking up, and Cornell went on to pursue a solo career for a time, but he also became the lead singer of the group Audio Slave, which was made up of the band members from Rage Against the Machine after their lead singer, Zach De La Rocha, left that band. However, Soundgarden reformed in 2010 and released a new album, King Animal in 2012, which marked Soundgarden's reunion after 16 years. The fans and the critics loved it. In addition to those studio albums, Soundgarden also released Alive in the Super Unknown in 1995 and Live on I-5 in 1996, both of those being live albums along with a bunch of compilation albums, including A-Sides in 1997 and Telephantasm in 2010. Then, on May 18, 2017, Chris Cornell unfortunately took his own life, ending the band as we know it today. Soundgarden's legacy as a pioneering force in the grunge rock genre is undeniable. The band's unique sound and powerful live performances have inspired countless musicians and helped to shape the sound of alternative rock for decades. 
Soundgarden was voted the 14th greatest band on VH1's Greatest Hard Rock Bands of All Time list. They were nominated for nine Grammy Awards during their career, winning two of them. They were the first of the four horsemen of grunge, of course, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Alice in Chains being the other three, to sign a record label deal, even though they weren't the first to break through. That honor still goes to Nirvana. They were, however, as influential due to their songwriting style, especially with their use of time signatures and Chris Cornell's voice. Chris's voice is actually what set them apart from the other Seattle bands, and he's a huge reason why they should be in this year. Finally. It's only been a few times now, people. Let's get with the program here. Chris Cornell was either a part of your parents' childhoods or their misspent 20s. To me and a lot of other people, he was, simply put, one of the greatest rock singers who ever lived. Heavy Metal Magazine actually put him at number four. Rolling Stone put him at number nine, while MTV made him number 12 in music, regardless of the genre. The man had a four-octave range, and he used every single bit of it. As an example, listen to the song Hunger Strike that he did with Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam for the Temporal of the Dog Project. While I take nothing away from Eddie, being a huge Pearl Jam fan myself, he and Chris had different singing styles. Eddie always brought intensity to his singing. Chris brought sheer, unadulterated power. The man could just flat-out sing. He was also a really good songwriter, which is something that I don't think he actually gets enough credit for. His death now leaves Eddie Vedder as the last of the original grunge front men alive, after the untimely deaths of Andrew Wood of Mother Lovebone, Kurt Cobain of Nirvana, Lane Staley of Alice in Chains, and now Chris. And no, I'm not counting the Foo Fighters as a grunge rock band. They're a hard rock band that came out of Nirvana's untimely breakup. They're not really grunge people. Now, if you want to get more into their music, a great place to start is Telephantasm, which is probably their greatest, greatest hits album. Then, I would absolutely get Super Unknown and Bad Motorfinger, their two biggest selling albums. Soundgarden has actually been nominated for induction a few different times now, and I do hope that this year the Rock Hall finally shows Soundgarden the respect that they fully deserve and finally inducts them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And you, yes you, can help with getting Soundgarden into the Hall by voting for them on the fan vote page on the Hall of Fame's website. Go to rockhall.com to vote. You can vote for five artists each day until late April. Each week in this spot, we highlight a different musical Hall of Fame, since there's a bunch more than just the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There is, for instance, the Country Music Hall of Fame, the Blues Hall of Fame, the Grammy Museum's Hall of Fame, among many others. We're going to start this week, though, with one that isn't a hall, per se. However, to me, it's probably the most important. 
The Library of Congress, aside from being a place in the movies All the President's Men and National Treasure, is the nation's library. Established in April of 1800, it has more than 38 million books, 14 million photographs, 70 million manuscripts, and 5.5 million maps. From a musical standpoint, it's important for a couple of reasons. The first is that it has over 8 million pieces of sheet music and over 3.5 million recordings. The second and the more important reason is what it does with certain recordings. Since the passage of the National Recording Preservation Act of 2000, the library has developed a registry to preserve and protect certain pieces of music and other recordings that are considered historically relevant. That is a pretty high honor, knowing that your song or album is so important to the nation that it needs to be preserved forever. This is a pretty high-class list you're joining here. Some of these recordings are actually speeches or radio shows from yesteryear. For instance, the earliest recorded version of Abbott and Costello's classic Who's on First comedy sketch, Orson Welles' War of the World's original radio broadcast, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech are all in the registry as are the first recordings on cylinders that Thomas Edison used to show off the phonograph at an exhibition. The first official class was in 2002. There were 50 recordings that were declared important. All of the above-mentioned recordings were in that first class. Only a few of them were from the rock and roll era. A lot of them were jazz. One recording was the first hip-hop song to be put in, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five's classic, The Message. 2007's class was a little bit more mainstream, but not by much. New York City Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia, yes, the airport in Queens, New York, is actually named after him, and President Harry S. Truman both made the registry with different speeches. There were some standards and jazz artists as well. However, there were also singles by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles and Roy Orbison that made it in, along with albums by the legendary Miss Joni Mitchell and this next artist. In 1980, Michael Jackson was pretty upset. Although his solo album, Off the Wall, had sold over 20 million copies worldwide and had spawned the hits Off the Wall, Rock With You, and Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, the album did not get Album of the Year at the Grammy Awards. What's more, he had tried to get on magazine covers, but Rolling Stone famously declined to do a story on him. As he told someone afterwards, quote, I've been told over and over that black people on the cover of magazines don't sell copies. Just wait. Someday those same magazines are going to be begging me for an interview. Maybe I'll give them one. Maybe I won't. End quote. With that in mind, Michael went to work on his new album. He recruited Quincy Jones, who had produced the Off the Wall album, to produce this next album. 
They recorded 30 songs, agreeing to nine of them for the album. He got songwriter Rod Temperton to help write a few songs, including Thriller, got horror film master Vincent Price to do the voice towards the end of the song, which Vincent pulled off in two takes because he was Vincent Price. He was that good. He also recruited the members of the group Toto to play on songs like Beat It, had Eddie Van Halen do a guitar solo, and got Paul McCartney to duet on a song. And when all was said and done, both Michael and Quincy listened to the album and hated it. They then spent the next two months stripping down the songs and remixing them. Finally, on November 30th, 1982, Michael released the album called Thriller. At first, it did okay, but not great. The Girl Is Mine with Paul McCartney was the lead single and went top 10. The next single, Billie Jean, had a little intrigue, some infighting, and also a little history to go along with it. The song was written by Michael. The song tells the story of a woman who accuses a man of being the father of her child. According to Michael, the song is not about one woman, but a bunch of women who accused his brothers of fathering their children back when he and his family, the Jackson Five, went out on tour. According to a few other reports, though, the song is actually about one crazed fan in particular who accused Michael of fathering one of her twins, don't ask how that's actually possible. Then, after sending him crazed letter after crazed letter, sent him a letter with a gun, telling him to kill himself at a certain time because if they couldn't be together in life, they would be together in death right after she killed their baby. Thankfully, that didn't happen. The woman was found and ended up in a psychiatric hospital. Quincy Jones didn't like the song at first and didn't think that it belonged on the album. He didn't like the opening at all. Michael would not even think about changing it. Michael wanted co-producing credit for the song because, according to Michael, the actual song was pretty close to the demo that Michael had made. Quincy said, absolutely no way, no how, not gonna happen. Their arguing got to the point where they didn't even talk to each other for a week. Another thing about the song was what they called sonic personality, which is when you hear the first few seconds of a song and you know exactly which song it is and who did the song. Since the first few seconds of Billie Jean are drums, that meant doing something different. They built a special drum platform and did a few other tricks to get that unique drum sound that you hear in the beginning and you know when you hear the first 10 seconds of that song, you automatically know who it is. There were two other things that helped make this song and album historic. The first was the music video. Directed by Steve Barron, MTV actually refused to play the video as they were, quote, a classic rock and roll station, end quote, which was really their way of saying that they didn't put black people on their channel. Michael's record label president, Walter Yetnikoff, famously threatened to pull every single video off of the channel unless they played Michael's video. 
And when that record label was CBS, which was the biggest record label in the world at that time, that threat carried an awful lot of weight. MTV relented and played Billie Jean. Good choice, as it actually helped to make both the song and Michael Jackson and MTV extremely popular. The second thing that made the song so popular was a TV special. The Motown 25 special was recorded on March 25, 1983 in Pasadena, California. No one knew it at the time, but one performance during that special would end up electrifying the world. The special itself was pretty good. A lot of the Motown greats were there. Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, Junior Walker, Mary Wells, and Martha Reeves were there. The night had a lot of reunions. Diana Ross performed with the Supremes for the first time in forever. Smokey Robinson performed with the Miracles. And Michael and his brothers, the Jacksons, all got back together again. The Jacksons performed a medley of their biggest Motown hits, and then they all left the stage except for Michael. Michael then performed Billie Jean, which was the only non-Motown song performed that night as he was already on Epic Records at that point. Around midway through the song, Michael spun around, slid backwards, and spun three times. The crowd went wild, for they had just seen Michael Jackson perform the moonwalk for the first time to Billie Jean. Now, the moonwalk was not a new dance, contrary to popular belief. People had actually been doing versions of it for years. In fact, if you watch old videos of 80s b-boy breakdancers, they did what was not called the moonwalk at that time. It was called sidestepping. Michael actually learned how to do the moonwalk from two dancers who had done it on the TV show Soul Train. He just took it to another level and did his spin on it. At the time this special was recorded, his album Thriller had been out for about five months and was doing okay but not great on the pop charts. Billie Jean was finally getting some airplay on MTV but was not quite a huge smash just yet. Also, there was no internet to speak of at that time and no social media, so word had not gotten out about Michael's performance. That all changed on May 16, 1983, in the evening, when the Motown special premiered on NBC television. Before that night, Michael was a popular artist with a bunch of hits with his brothers, the Jackson 5, and a few solo hits. After that night, all anybody could talk about was Michael's performance and especially the moonwalk. Billie Jean quickly flew up the charts to number one, where it stayed for four weeks. That was then followed by the song and music video for Beat It, which also flew up the charts to number one. That song had a bit of an accident when it was actually made. The basic working of the song was originally put together with two 24-track recording sync machines. Quincy Jones sent one of the machines to Eddie Van Halen to lay down his guitar solo. Eddie did his part and sent the machine back. They tried to sync the two machines together, but it didn't work. And in the process, they ended up losing most of the song. All they actually had were Michael's vocals, 
Eddie Solo, and a faint drum part that was caught in the background of one of Michael's vocal tracks that wasn't actually supposed to be there in the recording. Time to panic. According to guitarist Steve Lukather of the band Toto, who also did studio sessions during that time period, Quincy called him and Steve's bandmate, drummer Jeff Picaro, with the news and asked, more than likely begged, for help. Both of them went over to the studio. Jeff listened to the faint drum part and worked out his own part. Steve worked out the guitar part behind Eddie's brilliant solo. Steve said that he had to convince Michael of one of the chord changes in the song, but they all got it done. In the end, they synced it together, and this time it worked. Song saved in one night. For the record, the guys also worked on the song Human Nature. One other fun fact. Toto had just finished their mega-selling album Toto 4 at the time that work on Thriller was going on. Luckily for Toto, they put out their Grammy Award-winning album earlier than Michael did in 1982. As Thriller's release came out after the Grammy nomination deadline and Toto 4 was eligible for the awards in 1982 since they had put out the album earlier in the year. Toto 4 won the Grammy for Album of the Year the next year, and Michael won the Grammy the year after that. Had the two of them been going at the exact same time, well, somebody would not have been happy. The combination of the music videos for Billie Jean and Beat It suddenly made MTV must-see television and turned the network into a pop culture phenomenon. As for Michael, it's hard to describe just how huge he became. Uh, I'll try it this way. Take the craziness over the years of Justin Bieber, BTS, NSYNC, Taylor Swift, Beyonce, and virtually every other teen obsession, and then combine them. And you might actually get close to the craziness that surrounded Michael Jackson. If you don't believe me, check out some of the footage from that era on YouTube, especially some of his live videos. The man literally had thousands of people outside every hotel that he stayed at. He had to close off streets just so the guy could actually go from place to place. As for the album, it started selling over a million copies a week, went to number one, and stayed there for 34 weeks, only to be interrupted in that time a few times by other albums like Prince's Purple Rain soundtrack, before going right back to number one. Michael received a lot of critical acclaim and also eight Grammy Awards, including that elusive Album of the Year Grammy. It's been certified to have sold over 36 million copies in America, making it the second biggest selling album of all time in America behind the Eagles' Greatest Hits album. But it also has claimed sales of 67 million copies worldwide, making it the biggest selling album of all time on the planet. It still, to this day, sells almost 100,000 copies a week worldwide, especially around Halloween because Thriller. Oh, uh, about those magazines that wouldn't put him on the cover. Rolling Stone came begging for him to do an interview with them, even though they had only 
given Thriller four out of five stars on their initial review. Michael thought about it. But then he granted them the interview, but with a caveat. They had to put him on the cover. This time they obliged. With that issue of Michael Jackson on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine being their biggest selling issue in a very long time. Of course, after that came other successful albums and an awful lot of controversy culminating with his early death and an HBO documentary that trashed what was left of his reputation, but that's a story for another time. For now, just appreciate the man, his talent, and this amazing album that you still can't put down, especially every Halloween. Michael Jackson's classic album, Thriller, the biggest selling album of all time worldwide, inducted into the Library of Congress National Recording Registry, Class of 2007. And that is it for this episode of the Music Halls of Fame podcast. For more podcast episodes, which drop every Thursday in audio and video form, then please like, subscribe, and click the notification bell on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast from. Music